So Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. You may be seated. So as we go into the, 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 the book of Jonah, the next six weeks we're going to be walking through it. Most of those times we're going to cover um, entire chapters and, and pull out the themes that we, we feel that the Lord is, is, is highlighting for us, for this, this body of believers. Now, a lot of us, um, we, we've heard Jonah a long time ago when we was a kid. We, we, all we know was like there was this, a big fish, some of us say well, that, that ate Jonah. And um, we don't really know much about what really is happening here. So what I want to do today is set the stage for the rest of the series. First, I want to give some context, all right? I want to talk about um, some, some, some context that will give us some lenses to read through the book of Jonah to, to receive it. And then I'm going to, to, to dive into chapter 1. So for starters, there's three main characters in the book of Jonah, okay? The characters are first and foremost God. He's speaking all the way throughout the book of Jonah. He's given direction. He is um, the, the first main character. Secondly, of course, there's Jonah. That's the person that he's speaking to all the way through. He's a, he's a prophet called by God, and God is, is, is giving him some instructions. Thirdly, there is Nineveh. Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, is a character in and of herself. What I want to do is give some backdrop to these three characters so that we have context as we read the book of Jonah and understand um, what sort of shapes and, and forms um, Jonah's reaction on what God is doing and why uh, um, that we understand Nineveh. So what I want to do is I want to start with Nineveh. I want to give us some, some backdrop so we understand and we see Nineveh the way Jonah would have saw Nineveh when Jonah heard the word of the Lord to, to go to Nineveh. For starters, this is the first time an, an Israelite prophet is sent to a Gentile nation with a word from the Lord. All the other times, the, 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 the prophets are, are speaking specifically to Israel. There may be a word here and there while Israel is in the midst of a Gentile nation that's, that's said. But this is the first time where a prophet is not being sent to give a word specifically to Israel in, in, in a context. But a prophet is being sent out of Israel to a Gentile nation to give them a word. Now, I want us to understand Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. To understand Nineveh, you need to understand Assyria. It's sort of like if I'm talking to someone that's never, ever been to the United States and they want to know about Phoenix, well, I'm going to talk to them about Americans. 
right? Um, because um, the culture of America is what you'll find in Phoenix, right? So we need to understand Assyria if we're going to understand Nineveh and see Nineveh through the lenses of how Jonah would have seen and received this. Now, again, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Assyria was a world power at the time, right? They was, they was, they was huge. The only person that was, people that was competing with Assyria would have been, been Egypt. This is before the Roman Empire was doing anything. But Assyria was, was huge, and they was known, well-known, but they was well-known for something very, very specific. They was known for their violence and cruelty. This is what Nineveh was known for, their violence and their cruelty. They bragged about their wickedness. They wanted everybody to know how wicked they were. Some of the things that, that, that others knew them for was, was burning entire cities down to the ground. As a matter of fact, the king would, would, would commission artists to paint large mural-sized pictures, graphic pictures of, of brutal mutilation of people on the wall to sort of remember, yo, we did this, and we did that. They bragged about it. As a matter of fact, there was this thing that they would do where they would cut off the limbs of their enemies, right? They would cut off both legs and only one arm and leave one arm so they could shake their enemy's hand as he's dying. This is the type of thing that, 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 that Assyria is known for. This is inside of the mind of, of, of Jonah when he thinks about what? Go to Nineveh. As a matter of fact, when they would, they would kill people and make the survivors parade through the town with their loved ones their dead loved one's head on a spike, right? I saw this on a TV show, and that's where they got it from. They would, they would peel the skins of people off and hang it on the walls so people could point out, that's this person's skin, and that's that person's skin. As a matter of fact, they would burn adolescents alive, this is the type of thing Nineveh was known for. Now, Israel, in comparison to Nineveh, was, was insignificant and virtually unnoticed by Assyria. Even though they were neighbors, Assyria would basically just do whatever they want. Israel was constantly just basically marginalized. Like They, they just pushed it aside as someone that is of, of no significance. And it got to a point that during the reign of, of King Jehu, Israel was forced by Assyria to pay these heavy taxes. And Assyria is like, they're taking taxes, they're taking taxes and Israel from, from Israel, just forcing it. And during this whole time, Assyria continues to threaten Israel's northern kingdom. Now, the northern kingdom was Samaria. And Throughout Jonah's life, this is happening. This is the context, right? Then in the year 722, Assyria goes from just threatening um, their northern, Israel's northern kingdom to invading the northern kingdom and virtually destroys it, 
wipes Assyria out, and those that would survive, they kidnapped and took them back with them to Assyria and forced them into brutal slavery. This happened before Jonah was sent to, to Nineveh. As a matter of fact, there was this one time where the prophet Nahum prophesied about Nineveh, and he prophesied that God was going to destroy Nineveh for its evil, and that would have made perfect sense to Jonah. It would have made perfect sense to Israel because obviously Assyria was wilding out. Wilding out. 20 years later, God would send Jonah, a prophet from Israel, to that great city of Nineveh. So that's Nineveh, but let's talk about Jonah for a second, all right? We want to give context so that when we're reading this book, there's context to it, context that a lot of times um, we don't know. Well, Jonah. Jonah would have been um, a kid or right before he was born when Assyria um, invaded and destroyed Israel's northern kingdom, Samaria. So he would have grown up inside of this, grown up in the ripple effects of it, knowing this, hearing about it. But there's a thing about Jonah. Compared to to prophets like like Amos and, and Hosea, who criticized Israel's leaders that were unjust and unfaithful, Jonah was known to look past the unjust and unfaithful practices of Israel's leaders if that leader was trying to make the nation more powerful. Example, um, King Jeroboam, he was one of the worst kings in Israel's history, right? And what he wanted to do, he wanted to implement some some really, really aggressive military policies in order to, to give the nation more land and more power, which meant they would have to go to war to acquire these lands and and become more powerful, right? And Jonah comes and Jonah prophesies to King Jeroboam that he would win the battle to give the nation more land and more power. Here's the funny thing. God would later on send a prophet Amos to King Jeroboam to reverse Jonah's prophecy. And Amos comes and he said to King Jeroboam that that he was so unjust that God's justice was against him and that he would lose the battle and lose land. So the people that would originally read the book of Jonah, when they would read it, they would have remembered Jonah as a massively patriotic nationalist. Now, while caring for, serving, loving, and supporting uh, um, the nation or, or, or the people group that God has made you a part of is a part of worshiping God, there's a way that it often becomes an idol hindering the worship of God. And this is so often um, um, associated and having to do with a struggle for power, right? Whether it's to the left or whether it's to the, to the right and stuff, there's, there's often this struggle for power. In one case, it's, it's well, 
this particular group of people, you have power, and as a people group or a nation, you don't want to lose that power. You want to keep that power. So you become apprehensive to things that, that, that seem to threaten that goal of staying in power. In response, you become hyper-patriotic nationalists whose eyes become eclipsed with the thought of building and strengthening the nation. And the exact opposite side of that coin is you're part of a group of people who feel powerless. Group of people who feel powerless as a nation and, and you want to get into a position of power. You feel that that'll be safer. This is what we need. This is what we got to do. We need to acquire power. We got to get in this position and you become apprehensive to the things that seem to threaten that goal. And in response, become hyper-patriotic nationalists whose eyes have become eclipsed with the thought of building and strengthening your nation. This gives context to, 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 to some of the things Jonah would have been thinking. But like I said, there's three main characters. The third character, who is actually the main character, is God. You see, the book of Jonah is not primarily about Jonah or Nineveh. It's about God. If we're going to understand why God would send Jonah to a place like Nineveh, we need to look at God, not Nineveh. If we're going to understand why would, 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 would God send Jonah to a place like Nineveh, we need to look at God, not Jonah. If we're going to understand the mission of God, we need to view it through the lenses of covenant and his sovereignty. So let's set those lenses. If you look at Exodus 19 and 5, it says this. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. This is where God is at on this. But he, he sets this talk about all the earth being mines in a conversation about covenant. All right, you following that? You look at Psalms 24 and 1, it says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell within. See, this fullness means everything in the planet belongs to God. There's not a person on the planet that God does not inherently own. Every nation, every being, every animal, every tree, every thing that's made from those resources, it's all God's. The fullness they're in. This has to do with understanding his covenant and his sovereignty. You see, the covenant relationship between God and us is not just about God and us. It's not just about God and us. We get caught up just thinking about, man, I'm in covenant relationship with God. It's me and God, God and me, and us, and God's people, and, 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 and him. But it's not just about God and us. It's about God and all that is his. We need to understand that. 
It's about God and all that it is. Because I am in the covenant relationship with God, I care about all that is his. God uses us on behalf of him for the sake of all that is his. This needs to be understood. Everything that's that's shaping and molding how the people of God live is rooted in covenant with God, but you need to understand your God owns all these things. If you look at Psalms 117 verses 1 to 2, he says this. David is writing this, and he's writing this to Israel, right? He said, praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love towards us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Now, here it is. David calls all nations and all people to to praise the Lord. Why? Because his steadfast love is great towards us. But when he says us, he's not talking about all nations and all peoples. When When he says us, he's specifically talking about Israel. You see, He's saying all nations and all people should praise the Lord for God's steadfast love towards Israel. This was a song for Israel to sing. The reason why all nations and all people should bless the Lord for his steadfast love towards Israel is because Israel is blessed for the sake of all nations and all peoples. This needs to be understood here. God's people are blessed for the sake of all nations and all peoples because God owns all nations and all peoples. Being sent has always been a part of our covenant relationship with God. It's always been a part of our covenant relationship with God. The sending of God's people in the Old Testament is connected to the sending of God's people in the New Testament. So when we go through the book of Jonah, like I said, I just want to set the stage so we have the proper lenses. We understand the history. We understand what's shaping and molding everything. We understand God's heart inside of it. When we go through the book of Jonah, Jonah represents God's people. Whether it's Israel in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, or whether it's the church in the New Testament, in the new covenant, the, the covenant that we are a part of because he has gone past just Israel and included other people in the midst of it. See, the thing here is this. God has called us, his people, to have a prophetic voice in the midst of culture. That's in our DNA. That's part of being his people for the sake of of all that he owns. He's called us to have a prophetic voice in the midst of culture. Not just culture, but our immediate lives, inside of our family, we're listening, we're hearing we're speaking, we're following, but what happens 
when God wants to use you to do something that you don't think he should do. But well, hold on, Lord. Do you not know? <laughs> you saw the last few years. You saw what they did, right? What happens when, 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 when the person or the people God cares for and sends you out towards have treated you unjustly? unfairly, harshly, hard. People you are literally waiting for God's justice to just unfold against. What happens when God's sending challenges how you feel God should care for you? What happens when his sending challenges how you feel he should care for your people? What happens when his sending challenges how you feel God should care for your nation? What happens? As the prophetic people of God today, the book of Jonah speaks much to our hearts today. And it tells us much about the heart of God today. God calls Jonah to do something he doesn't want to do. So what Jonah does is he flees. He flees the presence of the Lord. I just gave some contextual backdrop how Jonah would have heard this. But it says he flees the presence of the Lord. As a matter of fact, in chapter 1, it says that three different times. I want to I slow down and I want to I look at the presence of the Lord, and I, want, and, I, and I want to give some context to this so we, so we get it, right? Um, so in Psalms 139, verses 7 through 10, David is writing, and, and David says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, <laughs> you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hands shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. David is acknowledging the omnipresence of God, right? He's everywhere at the exact same time. Jonah understood this. As we get inside the chapters, there is a point in time when Jonah is talking to the people and he said, listen, I serve the God of heaven who made the dry land and the sea. And when he's saying that, see, in those times, people will be like, oh, I serve the God of the sea. I serve the God of the air. And I serve this God and that God. And Jonah is saying, I serve the God who created everything. And what he's trying to say is like, listen, from, 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 from the everything from the bottom up. I, I serve that God. He owns everything. Jonah knows that he is omnipresent. So how do we grasp and understand this when we talk about the presence of the Lord? Let's look at Jonah 1 verses 1 through 3. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go to them, to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. See, while the the Holy Spirit is omnipresent, he's everywhere at the exact same time. He's in all time zones. He's He's in the past, the present, and the future, all at the exact same time. You see, there are these particular moments where he is particularly present in particular ways to you, to us. Where, where, where it's like he comes closer. It's, it's, it said the word of the Lord came. He like, it's like he comes closer. And what's happening inside this time is, is, is that the Lord is giving you a more heightened sense of his presence in a particular way. Oftentimes in these moments, he, he speaks the word of his will to our hearts. He stirs us up. Ah, uh, he, he, it, 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 it's like he, it's like he came, but he brought you up some. Now, this could happen when you're just inside of your house chilling, and, 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 and if you're, you're paying attention, you're sensing, man, I just feel the Lord is, 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 is speaking to me and is encouraging me, is doing something. Um, this could happen while you're at your job, you're in your cubicle, or you are driving the forklift. I, I'm, there would be times when I would be at my job, and then, um, and the Lord would just start speaking to me, and then I and, and I and I got used to knowing these times, and I would stop work, and I would start writing down the things that He's saying to me, and then I then I was like, "Dang, Lord, you're gonna make me get behind on my work and stuff," and then I learned like, "But just trust Him and stuff." Like He would always send help afterwards to help me get caught back up and stuff. So I mean. But this could be when you're at your RC group and there's something in amidst the discussion and the fellowship and the laughter of, of, of your brothers and your sisters and the Lord just sort of comes close and speaks to you and makes it mean a little bit more right now. It could be time when you're at church and, and you're listening to, to the word of God proclaimed, but the Lord speaks to you in a, in a really specific kind of way and just draws you closer to him as he comes closer to you. You could be in a supermarket. You could be anywhere because he is omnipresent and chooses at any moment to be particularly pleasant, present to you. Come close. There are times when we just desire this, 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 this more of a closeness. So, so we fast and, 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 we, and we pray and we, and we, and we, um, we go into moments of solitude. We, we dive into his word because we, we, we want the, the closeness. We, we want to feel his, his, his presence. So as we're reading this and we're thinking about um, um, the fleeing the presence of the Lord, you see, fleeing the presence of God is intentionally distancing your heart and your mind from the heart and will of God. Ah, you're trying to flee his, his, his presence. We often find ourselves in, in this position where, where there are things that God wants you to do that you just don't want to do. So we start to distance ourselves from him. You see this in so many different ways, but you see it all the way in the beginning with Adam and Eve. And, 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 and they sin, they, they, and, and, and they, they, they try to flee his presence by hiding themselves. And God comes and he says, where are you? But when he says, where are you? He's not talking in location. He's omnipresent. He knows exactly where they're at. 
But what he's saying is, I feel how distant your heart has become from mine. Where are you? There was a relational disconnect. See, we try to distance our hearts from God when we don't want to hear from God. And there's always a from and to. There's always something else that we try to fill the space and fill the void with. There's always a from and to. He went from, he ran from the presence of God to Tarshish. But it's sort of like we're trying to get out of range of his voice. Because we already know what he's going to tell us. He already know what he's going to tell us to do again. And we want to be comfortable in our rebellion. So we start distancing ourselves. We start fleeing the presence of God. And it starts in a posture of heart and then flows into actions that reflect that posture. So, so uh, oh, I stopped hanging out at RC. I, I stopped showing up at church. I, I stopped reading my word. I stopped talking to this person. I stopped talking to that person because God uses them way too much. And I don't want to feel conviction. I know the Lord has been telling me to do this particular thing. And the moment I talk to, to Pastor Josh, I know he's going to say that. So I'm going to act like I don't see him. I'm going to hide in the back somewhere. I'm sorry, bro. <laughs> God wants closeness, but, but, but we often want distance. And we'll pursue that distance at any cost. But let's look at John, Jonah on 1, verses 4 to 6. It starts off with, but... But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. You see, in particular moments of closeness, he speaks the word of his will regarding both our personal lives, regarding our families, regarding the body of Christ in general, but, but, but not just that. We often want to just limit it to this, that, just moral things. But the thing is, he speaks for God in all that is his as well. He speaks to the church. You see, the church has to remember her prophetic calling to echo the voice of God in culture. That's the calling of the church. We saw that in Ephesians 3 and 10. Through the church, God would, would display his manifold wisdom. But look what was going on over here. Because Jonah was not in line with God, there was a direct effect on the sea because of God's pursuit, which had a direct effect on the mariners, the sailors. Jonah's out of line. God is pursuing him. The sea is going wild, and it's affecting the mariners. It's affecting the sailors. And, and, and so what they started doing is, is trying to fix the situation with their own tactics. 
And they start throwing things overboard. They start, like, we got to figure out how to fix this. They start throwing things overboard, and they even resulted to, to idolatry. Lord, you pray to your God, and, and I'm going to pray to my God. They're trying to fix what's broken. But where was Jonah? Fast asleep in the bottom of the boat. And the mariners had to wake him up and ask him, dude, call on your God. You see, the church not being in her place has a direct effect on culture. We got to get this. We got to understand that. The church not being her place has a direct effect on culture. There is much about the brokenness of culture that persists. Because the church in so many ways has forsaken her prophetic voice in the midst of culture. So this is what they try to do instead. The church isn't in place. Things are chaotic. So the people try to fix the brokenness with their own devices. All over the place. We're going to fix it this way. We're going to fix it that way. We're going to take these actions. We're going to worship these idols. We're trying to fix these problems. And it's like the church is at the bottom of the ship sleeping. And God is using the culture. He's using the world to confront the church and say, wake up. Call on your God. But I love the story because it reminds me of a, a contrast story on the opposite side of the spectrum. I'm a writer of Mark 4, 37 to 40. This is when Jesus was in a boat in the midst of a storm. Check how similar this story is. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep, the bottom of the ship, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Sort of like what they was doing with Jonah. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? You see, Jonah was asleep because he was avoiding God and his calling like much of the church. Jesus was asleep because he had faith. He trusted the Father and knew who he was. So he had a non-anxious presence in the midst of the storm. You see, peace is trusting God in the midst of the storm. But fake peace, fake peace is acting indifferent to the reality of the storm. And the thing is, so many times, the church is more guilty of acting indifferent and calling it peace. I'm just, we're just trusting the Lord. Trust God. No, you're just being indifferent to it and pretending that it's trusting God. Two totally different things. But Jonah and Jesus was called to respond. Though Jesus... He rebuked that anxiousness. He did respond to the storm. But let's look what Jonah did. Jonah 1, 7 through 12. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. 
So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing for the presence of the Lord. Because he had told them, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Notice what he didn't do. Call on the Lord. Still. But they asked him, notice, they asked him, they asked him, what's your occupation? Then they asked, where did you come from? Then he asked, what's your country? And then lastly, who are your people? And he responds only to the last one. I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He responded with nationalism and religion. They didn't need nationalism and religion. Okay, and? But he doesn't repent. He doesn't call on God. Listen, I'm a Hebrew. Uh-huh. I serve the God who created all these type of things and just offered them up some religion. But still refusing to call on God. But instead he offers another solution. Suicide. Throw me overboard. He makes it seem like he's genuinely caring for them. I know it's because of me that all this stuff is happening. But what he's saying is, I would rather die than submit to the will of the Lord in this moment. Throw me overboard. If I'm dead, he can't force me to be obedient. This is what's happening here. You'll see that later on. This is what's happening. If I'm dead, he can't force me to be obedient. Throw me overboard. I know it's my fault anyhow. Many times we offer the idolatry of our particular nationality mingled with religion as an answer to the brokenness of culture, and that's not what's needed. We'd rather die before we do what God really actually wants us to do. Well, in 13 through 16, it says, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us the innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. You see, even though he told them his, 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 his death would save them, they started doing everything they can not to kill him. They, they, they kept rowing and rowing like, okay, he's, dude just said throw him into the sea. Okay, we're going to do everything. And, they, and they, you see, 
Sometimes the world can be more gracious than the church. Sometimes they can. It's like, oh, dude, say kill them. Okay. And they start working hard to, to avoid from having to do that. But eventually they give in and they toss him over. It reminds me of a lot of people that I know in culture. You see, many people have identified the church as the problem in culture. And in their hearts, they tossed her off the ship. I was at the airport yesterday, and I was in line, and the person that was right behind me, and when I say they've identified it, I'm saying they falsely identified it, right? But I was in line, and, and there was a, a woman in, behind me that was in a conversation with a person. The conversation just got loud. She got really, really angry, and she was like, the problem is the church. The church is the problem. All they do is divide people. All they do is this. All they is, 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 the church is just a cancer, and, 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 and she was just going off on the church. In her heart, the church is the thing that needed to be tossed out. I'm just sitting and I'm just listening. I'm like, man, a lot of that is is, is because we haven't walked in our covenant relationship with God the way that we should. But catch this. Even when the church is in rebellion and not in our place, God still draws people to himself. He's still. He's going to get his glory. I mean, these sailors had no idea when they woke up that morning, even though they were Gentiles, even though they wasn't Israelite, by the end of that day, they would be worshiping the God of Israel. That they, 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 here they are making sacrifices to him. By the end of that day, they knew that he was the God of heavens, the dry land, and the sea. They knew that, and they're making sacrifices to him, and they're worshiping him. Gentiles, they wasn't even a part of Israel. The gospel hadn't gone out to them yet, but they seen him, and they testified to the reality of his truth. And God is like, I'm getting my glory one way or another. See, God is greater than your rebellion Didn't even use your rebellion to testify to his goodness. The band, oh, Scott can come up. <laughs> I love Scott. He's cool. <laughs> Jonah 1 and 17. We'll close at the end. It says this. And the Lord appointed a a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. There is so much to this text that I'm leaving to Pastor Aaron to to, to unpack. Next week, as he goes into the next next chapter. But but what I do want to point out here is, is, is God chose grace in Jonah's rebellion, in Jonah's suicide attempt. Instead of Jonah just drowning in the water, God sends a fish to swallow him up. Like, I know, Jonah, you're trying to get away, but (laughs) you're doing what I called you to do. Despite our rebellion, God still preserves his people. There's something that, that, that he's doing. It's about him. Like I said, the book of Jonah is about God. As we... Get ready for communion. What I want to say is this. 
Ah, oh, man, you wish you could talk to Jonah sometimes. And if you could talk to Jonah, this is what you would say. Stop running. Stop running. Stop fleeing his presence. As we come to the table today, and we, we sup together as a family, we eat the bread that represents his body that's given for us. We, we drink the juice that represents his blood that's flowing for us. And we fellowship together in communion, acknowledging the covenant that binds us together as the people of God, the same covenant that calls us to care for all that is his. I want to say stop running. For some of us inside of here, God will speak to you, particularly inside this moment, as the word stop running echoes through. He's calling you to stop running. He's pursuing you. And inside of his grace, he's kept you. As a matter of fact, it was a part of his grace to send the storms in your life that you've been experiencing. The things that, that's been, been hindering, and you've been doing everything you can to run. So here's a call individually as a person in God, stop running. But here's a call to the, to the church altogether, stop running. Let's walk in a prophetic voice in the midst of culture. In the midst of our families, in the midst of our marriages, stop running, listen to God, submit to him. Stop trying to fill up the void because you're running from and to. But instead, submit to him, hear his voice, and know that his grace is so sufficient. As we go to the table, let that set the tone as we sup together. And if you need prayer. We'll be on the side ready to pray for you. The tables are open. Let's break bread. He's good.